So our church, we believe three things. This is the story of Scripture, right? So we see this throughout the entire movement of Scripture. That, number one, that we believe that there's hope beyond our brokenness. Right now, you are welcome here. You are loved right where you are. And thank God that He doesn't leave us that way. Amen? I know, I know that you're, you're thinking that about your spouse, and you might be afraid to say it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, I know you're thinking about that about your kids uh, and your grandkids and your roommates and especially your neighbors. Um, and the great joy of, of getting to know Jesus is that we have, we have permission, we have a runway, um, an on-ramp, if you will, that's very generous. And where we get to, to, to learn about who He is, to learn about who we are, and to have permission to, to have space to recover and to be healed, and also a calling on our life to be done with the things that are killing us. And we have permission to go to war against that which is choking us and the sin that we find is tripping us up. And the great joy of following Jesus is that no matter where you are in your story, you are loved and welcome here. Second thing we believe is that we are called to trust in our risen Savior. So, Trusting Jesus takes all of your courage and all of your strength and all of your heart because we're, we're called not to find the light within us, right? We're called to follow God who is alive, our risen Savior. And so we'll be talking a lot about that today because that's what today's passage is about. Finally, we're called right now to bring restoration. Somebody's been saying a prayer this last week. They've been praying, praying, praying. God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but they're praying. And as you put money into a little metal bucket, you became the answer to that prayer. And now Susan will be the, the messenger of good news, the angelos, the angel, where she will deliver the answer to that person's prayer. And that's what we get to be as a community. To love each other, to bring restoration, to see that you get to be a part of putting back together this broken world in just the way God wants you to. So you have a calling and an invitation, dare I say it, a dangerous adventure that God wants you to go on. And it is such a joy to do that together. So that's what we believe as a church. So let me pray for this morning's offering because we, 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 need your, we, need, we need your generosity. I'm so grateful for it. You guys have been so kind and so faithful to this church. We're so thankful for you. So can I pray for us all as we give? Heavenly Father, thank you for these faithful saints. Lord, we ask your blessing upon their lives, upon their health, upon their family, their relationships, their businesses, and their financial health. God, we ask for your peace to rest upon them. We ask your provision. God, we pray that there would be so much financial provision in their life that it would overflow. I just thank you that, that they've been so faithful to give to this church and to see your kingdom come. Now bless them, Jesus, and use that which we give. Grow it. We're offering to you our little loaves and fishes, our sack lunch, and we're saying, Jesus, please multiply this. And we trust you to provide, God. We trust you to provide every need that we have. So once again, we lay our resources, our time, our money at your feet. All of it's yours, Jesus. You gave everything to us, and now we give it all back to you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.
So as the offering plates pass around, why don't we repeat the decisions that we make because we believe that there is hope beyond our brokenness, because we believe that we're called to trust in our risen Savior, because we believe that we are called to bring restoration to our community, each one of those movements in God's story also has a corresponding decision that we get to make. And it goes like this. Read this with me. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in His resurrection work. So each one of those choices is kind of the rhythm of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so here at this church, you're going to find lots of opportunities to participate in each one of those choices. We have Bible studies and small groups, and, and some of you are terrified at being in a small group, and so we understand that. And so we have larger groups for you, and we have opportunities for you to learn and grow. Um, and you can find out more uh, in the Welcome Center and online. But we have all these opportunities, these access points for you to make that choice within the support of this community. And the great thing about being part of a smaller church is, is literally, that's my job is to help you through it. And so you have staff. Did you know that? So now you, you, you can actually say that when you're talking to your friends. I'll, 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 I'll talk to my staff about that and, and we'll get back to you. And, and your staff is this church. We're here to serve you. So we're not, you're not here to serve us. We're here to serve you. That's why we're hired. And uh, that's why you generously pay for our salaries is because we're here to love and bless and serve you. And our great joy, Pastor Paul and I and the rest of the staff, our great joy is to connect with you and spend time with you to do that. So, thank you, thank you. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here this morning. And, Father, we pray continued protection upon this time. Lord Jesus, we pray your very presence here. We ask, God, that you would silence everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to distract or, or bother us or to put us to sleep or to have us be thinking about the to-do list after, after church today. This time is your time, Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, protect us, guard us. We pray your angels all around us, Jesus. We pray that the buzz and the sound system would go away. God, we pray for just some peace. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Gail, can you shut those back doors? Thank you. So, uh, we talk about grace a lot. We, we talk about God's mercy a lot. We talk about you being loved just where you are a lot. Um, I talk about obedience, too, what it looks like to follow directions. Uh, and the good news, what we'd call the gospel, is the whole story of, of who Jesus is and how he saves us. But it's within this whole story of Israel's story, of God saying, you're mine, and then our wandering and disobedience, and then God making a way where there was no way. And if you were to kind of take that whole story of Israel with its culmination in Jesus, right? God coming down to earth to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died so that we might be forgiven and set free. His life and death and resurrection, if you were to kind of boil that whole story down into a little phrase, which sometimes is helpful, not helpful all the times, but sometimes it's helpful, you, you, you might say it like this, that, that the good news is this, is that you're, you're far more loved than you could ever, ever dare to hope. Actually, sorry, I messed that up. It starts, it starts with the wandering, doesn't it? You're, you're more broken than you'd want to admit. And you're more loved than you could ever dare to hope because Jesus lived for you, died for you, and has risen again for you. Now, that good news changes our life. 
It changes everything about our life. And we are then called to begin to trust God. O obedience is just a word where, where we would say that we're willing to follow directions. We're willing to submit our lives to something greater than ourselves. We're willing to, to not drag God along, but to follow where he goes. Does that make sense? Peter Forsyth, he was a Scottish theologian, lived in the 1880s, born in the 1880s, lived to and worked till about 1921. He wrote this. He said this, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Meaning that you and I are designed to worship. We are going to worship something. We will, we will obey someone or something. That's how human beings are designed. And we live in a culture that says this, worship yourself. You are your own master. And we don't need very much help to push us and convince us into that camp. Amen? But as followers of Jesus, I mean, the reason why you're here on Daylight Savings Time, congratulations, you're, the, you're part of the chosen. You're, you're, going, you're going to heaven for sure, y'all. Um, the reason why um, that we're following Jesus is because we've discovered that, that when we decide to be our own master um, and we say, you know what, God, I can, I can steer my own ship, after a while we find ourselves shipwrecked. And we wake up on the shore and we go, what just happened? And then we patch up our ship and we go sailing along again. And then and God says, well, do you want to follow my directions? Like I, I got a map and a compass and now I got it. And then we find ourselves shipwrecked again. And after a while we go, hmm, this isn't working. And um, shipwrecks are painful. And so we've learned that actually letting Jesus be in charge and following his direction, it, it just works better. It's a very practical solution. And so, so you're here because you've learned that lesson, right? Say, say yes. You're here because you are learning that lesson. Say, say. Okay, good. good. So, You had a lot more resonance with the you are learning. As in, not I have already learned that and now I'm better, but that's what I'm learning. And that's, that's where we are with obedience. We struggle with obedience sometimes for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's about us. Like, like for me, I like being in control. I, I like... Well, I'm afraid that if I, if I wait for God, that good things will pass me up. I know that makes no sense. I'm just telling you about my internal insanity, okay? Um, I'm afraid that if I wait for God or if I trust Him or if I do what He says, that life will fall apart because I'm used to trying to keep it all together by myself. Uh, so... So the dynamic there is that I'm actually serving fear rather than God because fear says everything's going to fall apart unless you intervene. So I'm actually having a conversation with fear rather than God. And that's about me. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you like, you like doing things your, your way. You like doing things your way? You have a particular way. It's called the right way. And if people would just do things your way, which is the right way, it would work out better, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Which is another way of saying that, that you figured it out. Which is another way of saying, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. Which is another way of saying, I'm more interested in having a conversation with my pride than my Savior. Now, we have little areas in our life. It's not all of our life. We just have little areas in our life where we have conversations with fear or with pride. And, and, and those little areas ha have roots into the fabric of our life, and they bear stinky fruit. Amen? 
could be your crankiness, could be your self-centeredness, it could be your fear, it could be your anxiety, it could be you're insistent on your way, whatever it is, you've bumped into that crankiness. People in your life, if they're honest with you, have said, wow, this, this fruit really stinks. <clears throat> and so you do your best to try and sweep away the fruit. That's all about us. That's why we struggle with obedience because that's our, that's all, those are our issues. There's another reason why we struggle with obedience, and that's because we misunderstand God. Sometimes we think God is like a cosmic butler. <laughs> now, you and I have legitimate needs. We have legitimate concerns. We have things that we are, are worried about, diagnoses that we're dealing with. Um, we have family members that are in significant pain, that are in real danger. We have situations at work that, are, that mean, have vital consequences for the, for the future of our life. So I don't want to dismiss any of the very real concerns that you have. They're real. What we often do, though, is we assume that God doesn't understand what we need, and we insist that our solution needs to be adopted immediately. And we say, God, I'm going to use this thing called prayer, which is like my little butler bell, and I'm going to say, I need you to do it this way right now. And when he doesn't answer our prayers, what do we surmise about God? That he doesn't fill in the blank. Care about you, love you, prayer doesn't work, he's not there, right? So sometimes God doesn't do the things that we want him to do and we get frustrated and we get confused and we think well why wouldn't God heal my child or why wouldn't God take away this disease or why like oh, we don't get it and that's just something that we're always going to struggle with but to misunderstand God to, to treat him like our butler it would be to only cement our struggle with obedience I was talking with a, a high schooler. He sits back here. I call this the peanut gallery. I call this the almond gallery. <clears throat> so there's a high schooler in our almond gallery in the back row. <clears throat> He's in the middle. He says to me, <clears throat> he says to me last week, Andy, you've been talking about the two spies that go into the promised land every week. You always mention Joshua, but I'm named after the second spy, and you've yet to mention my name. <laughs> Does anybody know the name of the second spy? Yeah, I don't know his name either. And uh, so he says, why won't you just say my name? I'm waiting for you to say my name. And I said, I said, well, now that you've asked me to say your name, I'm not going to say your name. So <clears throat> it's a Hebrew word, and it has uh, three consonants to it. There's a, there's a C and a B and an L in there. I think it's pronounced Cabela's. Is that, is that right? Sure, why not? So the, the point is, is sometimes you don't get what you want. And, uh, and you think to yourself, God, what, what's going on? I, th I, thought, I thought my parent, I thought my God, I thought my pastor was like my butler. There's another thing that we misunderstand God about is, is, is we think God is sort of our cosmic therapist, Right? That God's job is to manage my emotions at all times. So, so the hardest thing for me to go through is when I feel mad and sad and helpless all at the same time. That's, that's my kryptonite. Mad, sad, and helpless all at the same time. That's when I do not do well. That's when my coping strategies fail. Right? That's when, like, if I'm at Trader Joe's and I feel mad and sad and helpless, the little frosted sugar cookies, they're coming home with me. And they're not going to make it to my home. That plastic container is going to be thrown away somewhere to hide the evidence before I should get up to the front door. It'll only be the crumbs. 
that's a mild coping strategy, you know. So I'll develop resentments quickly. I'll 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 want to control things. I'll and what I want God to do is I want God to take away all my feelings so I don't feel mad and, and sad and helpless. When in reality, the situation actually might call for a little bit of anger that someone's being hurt and there's real sadness because something's been lost. And I am going to feel helpless because in this situation, I might not be able to do anything. But instead of feeling, I don't want to have those feelings. I'm mad that I have those feelings to begin with. And I think, God, why don't you just take my feelings away? Please prescribe me something that will help me not to feel, a.k.a. not be human. That is a misunderstanding of God. It will be very difficult for you to follow God if you think that God's job is to make you feel a particular way at a particular time. Then there's, of course, those of us who delay obedience with Sort of this idea that maybe one day, well, what God is really after is he's after one spectacular moment of obedience. So what we do is we say, you know, when it really gets down to it, I'll be there for Jesus. But I got stuff to do from now until then. There was a famous businessman, terribly ruthless, lived in Boston. He said to Mark Twain, he says, before I die, I'm going to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud from the top. And Mark Twain replied to him, I have a better idea. You could stay in Boston and actually keep the Ten Commandments now. I love Mark Twain. So there's two things that... I there's two foundations I'm talking about here, and obedience rests on both. Obedience rests on, on what do you believe about yourself. Are, are you better off on your own, or are you better off trusting God? You know, obedience also rests on another foundation, which is, which is what do you really believe about God and who God is? John Kenneth Galbraith was an economist and a diplomat under President Kennedy and then President Lyndon Johnson in the 60s. And John Kenneth Galbraith, brilliant guy, he adored his housekeeper, Emily. And Emily had worked for the family for years, and Emily was just part of the fabric of everyday life. And she was adopted into this family. And everyone loved Emily, and Evely. Emily was fiercely loyal to John Kenneth Galbraith. And one day, Galbraith came home to take a nap. He was in Washington, D.C. He was working for Lyndon Johnson at the time. And Galbraith came home to take a nap, and he told Emily, no calls, I'm exhausted, I'm going to take a nap. And the phone rang about 15 minutes into John Kenneth Galbraith's nap, and Emily answered the phone, hello, Galbraith residence. And... The line, person on the other, line, other end of the line said, get me Galbraith, Ken Galbraith. This is President Lyndon Johnson. And Emily said, well, he's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. And Lyndon Johnson said, well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. I'm the President of the United States. And Emily said, no, Mr. President, I do not work for you. I work for Mr. Galbraith. She hung up the phone. Like 45 minutes later, Galbraith wakes up. This is all in his memoirs. Galbraith, Galbraith wakes up and he says, and he calls Emily. And Emily relayed this message. And Galbraith was just so pleased and stunned all at the same time. And he called back to the White House. And Lyndon Johnson goes, who is that woman? <laughs> and Galbraith says, well, she's, my, she's Emily. She's part of our family. She's... She takes care of things around here. And Lyndon Johnson said, well, I want her working for me. <laughs> so Emily loved her, her boss, not the president, her true boss, Galbraith. Emily wanted to honor and protect her boss. So Emily did simply what she thought was best, given what she truly loved, given 
who she truly loved and what she wanted. And this is exactly what James K. Smith says in his wonderful book, You Are What You Love. We've read this last couple of weeks. Let's read it again, again together today. We are what we love. We are what we love because we live towards what we want. So let me, let me connect the dots between obedience and this statement in Emily's life. Obedience therefore, is listening to God's word and following God's lead and gladly living under God's rule because Jesus is what you truly want, who you truly love. If you truly want Jesus, if you love him, obedience is joyful. It's easy. It's not a bad word. It doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth it becomes a pathway to your greatest joy. Of course I want to live under God's rule. I don't end up shipwrecked. Of course I want to follow God's direction. He's leading me to good pastures and still waters. Of course I want to spend time with Jesus. Only He can satisfy my soul. Everything else becomes a counterfeit. But that requires you to love Him and want Him. Now, what does Jesus ask of you? It's pretty simple. Follow me. Jesus is saying, look, don't ask me to follow you. You don't know where you're going. Can anyone here predict the future? If you can, let's write a book. We'll make billions. Since you can't, and God can, don't you think it's reasonable to follow Him? So, Jesus is saying, look, go where I'm leading you. Don't insist that I go where you're leading me. So, Would you pray a dangerous prayer with me? It goes like this. I'm going to give you a preview so you know the contract that you're signing. Lord Jesus, forgive me for trying to drag and boss you around. Give me a heart that loves you and you alone. Help me to listen to and follow you, not my fear or my pride. Could we say that? Could we pray that together? Lord Jesus, forgive me for trying to drag and boss you around. Give me a heart that loves you and you alone. Help me to listen to and follow you, not my fear or my pride. Why, why do we pray this prayer? Because here's the point of today's sermon. God will astound you with his goodness. God will amaze you with his goodness and his provision and blessing. God adores you. And Jesus does not want you to miss out on one moment of his presence, his help, his blessing, his provision, his promise in your life. And so this is where exactly where Joshua is. Joshua has seen God do amazing miracles. He's seen God part the Red Sea. He's seen God deliver Israel out of the most powerful military and political system in the known world. That's called Egypt. And it, they win victories, and they're freed, and God shows up, and he shows up at Mount Sinai, and Joshua has seen all of this happen. And now for 40 years, they've been fed by God every single day. And they followed God's presence day and night every single day. And now they're about to step into the promised land. And they've just gotten word back from two spies that have come from Jericho. They've met Rahab and, and the land Vikings that live there. The Amorites, remember them? the big six, seven-foot-tall dudes who only eat meat and destroy everything, those people, they're all melting in fear because Israel is about to enter into the land. And so it's all good news, and they're right on the verge. And Moses, or jo Joshua, he can't delay obedience. He can't sink away in fear. He can't make up his own plan. Joshua has to follow directions in order for the people of God 
to enter into the promised land. This is where we are in Israel's story. So let's read Joshua 3 together. Joshua 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from... <laughs> she... Team. Let's read it again. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. Okay, so Joshua has told the officers what to say, and so the officers are relaying Joshua's message to the people. There's a couple million people camped out on the banks of the Jordan River. They're spread out a couple of miles. And this is what Joshua has told the, the priest to tell the people, right? So this is, this is early version of Twitter. Okay, here it is. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. So they've left this oasis that has an unfortunate name, and they're now camped on the bank of the river. And the instructions are really clear from Joshua. Keep your eye on the big golden ark. It's not hard to see, made out of solid gold. It's that big shiny object. Keep your eye focused on the ark. Now, the ark is, is also the place of God's presence, right? So when Israel was on the move, God's presence left wasn't in the Holy of Holies anymore. That tent, tent was rolled up and packed away. It was now in the ark. So what Joshua is saying to his people is, keep your eyes focused on God as we move forward into the promised land. Picking up what Joshua is putting down. Don't try and cross at the place that you feel would work. Don't build a raft and sell tickets as a little side hustle. Keep your eyes focused on God, and you cross where he's made a way. That's what Joshua is saying. Verse 4. Then you will know which way to go. Pause. Because they don't know where to go. They've never been here before. Right? Okay, so then you will know which way to go, since you have never been to this this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits. That's about three football fields, so it's about 900 yards. Keep a distance of about three football fields between you and the ark. Don't go near it. That's for two reasons. Number one, it's holy. Number two, um, everybody needs a chance to be able to see the ark. Nobody could see it if everybody was like, I'm following, I'm following, and they were a foot away. Does that make sense? Okay. I like what Joshua is saying. You've never been here before, so follow God. Keep your eyes on him. Next verse, verse 5. Joshua then gives these instructions. Joshua told the people, read this with me, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. This this. A phrase, amazing things, could be translated as wonders. The literal Hebrew phrase is things to be astounded at. So tomorrow, God's going to do amazing, astounding, incredible things. God's going to do a miracle. And Joshua says, right now, y'all, I need you to prepare your hearts for what's about to happen. That's what the word consecrate means means to prepare your hearts for what's about to happen. Look, trusting God isn't easy. Trusting God takes your energy, it takes your determination, it takes your will. We live in a day and age in which trusting anything is super easy. We just track it on our app, right? Where's my stuff? I'll, oh, it's left the shipment facility in Indiana. It's on its way. Oh, he's stopping to eat. Ah, here it comes again. It's arrived at the Santa Maria processing facility. And now it's on the truck 
of my best friend, the UPS driver, and it's arrived at my, oh, it's in my mailbox right now. So it doesn't take any effort to trust that something that we've ordered will show up on our front door. We just follow it on the app. Following God takes a lot more energy than that. Look, follow God, trust Him, keep your eyes focused on Him when you're sick and you're not feeling better. Follow God and trust Him when you're mad and afraid and feel helpless. Follow God and trust Him. As Isaiah says in chapter 50, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And what Isaiah is saying is that sometimes it, that's what it looks like to, to trust and follow God. There's no darkness. There's no, it's all darkness. There's no light. You don't know where to go or what's next. And it's not easy. And this is why Joshua says, Keep your eyes focused on God. Verse 6, read with me. Shrug your shoulders, everybody. <clears throat> Here we go. Ready? Verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Here it is. It's happening. It's finally happening. They're about to go. The band is playing the music. There's somebody's on the violins. The crescendo's about to play. Look, we're on the way. We're about to head into the promised land. Verse 7, and then the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you. Me? Yeah, you, Joshua, in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that... Oh, dang it. If I was Joshua, it would be like, you're going to exalt me so that everybody will know that I'm wonderful. <laughs> oh, that's not what you're saying. You're saying that you're going to exalt me so that everybody know that you're wonderful. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, <laughs> dang it. Okay, so today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that the, they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, Go and stand in the river. That's a great thing to ask pastors to do, to have faith. Pastor Paul, what I need you to do is, I need you to go into the River Jordan, and by the way, it's wintertime, so it's about 25 feet deep, and it's in flood stage, so it's about 400 yards wide, and it's going about 15 miles an hour, and it'll kill you, and Mm, three minutes. So I need you to go stand in there first. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to bring your fly rod or anything like that. Like, I need you to carry a large golden object that you don't get floaties either. You're like, hmm. More on that in a second. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites. These are all the land Vikings, by the way. These are all Amorites. These are all the people that Rahab is a, is a person of. All of these people are from the same tribe. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, one day you'll you know, Abraham is passing through Israel. He says, one day you're going to occupy this land after the Amorites, after their sin has ripened to its fullest. Meaning that all of these people groups are here is because they've slaughtered and killed every person that actually built a house or planted a vineyard or a garden. All of these tribes are occupying land that they did not cultivate. They just came in, killed the original inhabitants, and now they're occupying the land. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go over some, some of the toughest passages in all of Scripture where God says to Israel, look, I want you to go to war against these people and don't leave anybody alive. Those are verses that we legitimately struggle with. We're going to go over those in a couple of weeks, not today, okay? So Joshua is saying, look, God is, 
is going to show you that he's faithful by getting rid of all of the land Vikings. Okay? The Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gurgleshites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Now, so all the people are listening to Joshua, and, and they're clearly afraid of all of these people groups. But right now, they're not so worried about the land Vikings because what they're looking in front of them, now that they're actually standing on the banks of the Jordan River, what they're looking at is an impossibility. There's no way that they're going to cross the river. So what does Joshua say to encourage them? Verse 11, read with me. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Paul's going to carry it. Verse 12. Now then, choose 12 men. That this, those 12 guys will come ahead later. Verse 13. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Huh. The Lord of all the earth. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and all who belong in it. Either God is sovereign over all things or He's not. Joshua is saying He's sovereign over all things. You're worried about all the land Vikings. You're also worried about the water. God is going to deal with the water to give you courage about what's going to happen next in your life. Keep your eyes on God. Keep watching God. As soon as this priest step into the water, you're going to see a miracle. It's going to be the Red Sea all over again. And you've got to remember, everybody who's crossing the Jordan wasn't alive when they crossed the Red Sea. It was just a story that their parents and grandparents told them. This is a brand new generation, and they're going to see the Red Sea part all over again. Now, let's just digest what Joshua has said for a moment. Here's what we know. God wants us to follow the ark into the raging Jordan River, and we're supposed to hope that we can hold our kids and our belongings 16 to 20 feet above our head and not drown and make it across. That's what we know. And it's at that moment when Joshua says, you're going to cross the river, and we look at the river and we go, I don't think I can cross the river. It's at that moment where you and I are tempted to make a fatal mistake. When you and I are asked to trust God, we are tempted to give up what we know about God for what we don't know about the future. Let me say that again. When we face an uncertain an uncertainty, what we're, what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to, what we, to give up what we don't know about God for what we don't know about the future. Let me say it in a different way. We know God loves us. We know God is with us. We know God has a long track record of saving us and forgiving us and delivering us from evil and healing us and helping us and sending miracles and coincidences and impossible encounters, all of which has blessed us. Amen? Amen? You and I could stand here for hours and tell all the stories about all the little ways that God has changed our life, right? You're here on Daylight Savings Time morning. Clearly, God has done something in your life. Amen? So if we would tell this story over and over and over again about what God has done, that's what we know about God. And we could choose to hold on to God's love and faithfulness for us in our life. But what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to let all of that go because we're freaked out about what we don't know that might happen. That's what we're tempted to do. We don't know how God's faithfulness and power will be revealed in the future. We don't know what Jesus is up to tomorrow, next week, next month. We don't know. You've been praying for your husband. You've been praying for your wife. You've been praying for your kids, for your grandkids. You've been praying about your business. You've been praying about your future, your health. And, and you don't know what God is going to do in the future. 
And so often we are tempted to give up on trusting God now because we're worried about what he may or may not do in the future. This is straight from David Jackman's commentary on Joshua. It goes like this. Read this with me. Never give up what you know about God for what you don't know about your future. Amen? Joshua is telling Israel the same thing. Look, we don't know how we're going to cross the river. We don't know how God is going to pile up the waters. We don't know how any of this is going to work. But we do know our God. He's already done this on the Red Sea. So let's keep our eyes on the ark and follow. Verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. How are the priests feeling? (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. I love you, sweetheart. We'll see you in heaven. It's been good. Why did I sign up for this? Verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests carried the ark, reached the Jordan River, and their feet... I mean, can you imagine being the first guy? Their feet touched the river... And like people are behind you. They're all carrying this ark. You remember Indiana Jones and Sala, right? The thing's heavy, okay? So they're carrying this thing. And, and you know, like the, the person in back is like, let's just go, right? And the person's friend's like, stop pushing. Stop it. Seriously. Seriously. Stop pushing. Stop it. Stop. 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 Right? As soon as they walk into the water, right? As soon as the priests who carried the ark reach the Jordan and their feet touch the waters, Ed, read this with me. The water from it dries up. It dries up. This raging river just dries up. Verse 15. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for dirt or earth. Right? That's what Adam means. Any Adams here? It's what Adam means. Dirt or earth. So, in a town called Dirt, it's about 20 miles north of Jericho, the water starts piling up. Why do we know this? It's because everybody who lived there, right, they're washing their clothes, and then all of a sudden, the river turns into this giant massive wall of water and they can see the fish and they're going, what is going on? And by the way, this is 20 miles upstream from the mouth of the Dead Sea, which means that every single village that dots this river, they don't have any water. And so they're going, what's happening? What's going on? Now the Dead Sea or the Salton Sea is salty, so they can't find water there. So they're traveling north, trying to find where the water is, and finally they show up at Adam, and they see this giant wall of water. So the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. I found a really terrible map I want to share with you. Here it is. There's Joshua to the left. He looked nothing like that. Um, there's the Dead Sea, you can see, and you can see the River Jordan there. You can see Jericho. It's the, it's the dot next to the dot called Gilgal. Gilgal is, is where they finally camp um, at the end of this passage. Now, they've just crossed the River Jordan. As you can see, it's this massive floodplain. The town Adam is actually where the word river is. That's how high above, that's where the water's piled up. So, Verse 17, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by into the whole nation and completely completed the crossing on dry ground. So you can imagine everybody is giving them lots of space and they're walking over on dry ground and they're looking at the Ark and they're, they're hoping and wishing and praying that the priests actually stay put and don't leave so that they can get their family and their loved ones and their animals across. Millions of Jews walk across the Jordan River into the Promised Land 
mud on the ground, fish flopping. They're walking across. Chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. They're going to stay at Gilgal. And what do they do at Gilgal? They, they take each one of these 12 stones and they make a pile of rocks. The Hebrew word for a pile of rocks, do you remember what it is? Ebenezer, right? And here's, here's why. Ebenezer, next slide, John. Eben is, means stone. Ezer means to remember. So an Ebenezer, right? How's that hymn go? Here I raise my Ebenezer, right? Here I pile up my rocks because hither to this place, hither by thy help I've come. To this place I've come by only your help, God. That's, that's what we're singing when we sing the song, Be Thou My Vision. Come that fount, sorry, not Be Thou My Vision, Come that fount. That's what that hymn means. And Ebenezer is a pile of rocks to help you remember what God has done for you. Now, why? Well, because we forget. Our eyes drift to our problems. Our eyes drift to asleep. Our eyes get bored with life and we watch Netflix and we forget what God has done. Our eyes wander into the obstacles of the future and, and which seem impossible to overcome. But that's not where you are. You're here right now at church on a Sunday morning. Amen? You're right here, and God has brought you right here to this moment right now because He loves you. And He's asking you right now, remember what I've done for you. Keep your eyes focused on me. Don't worry about the land Vikings. Don't worry about the impossible things to come. Keep your eyes focused on me. Make a pile of rocks if you have to in order to remember that I love you, I'm with you, I will never leave you, and I am working for you. So in men's Bible study for the last couple of weeks, we've been building Ebenezer's. I'm not kidding. And so guys in the men's Bible study, Tuesdays at 4, you're all welcome, except you ladies. Um, we pile up rocks, and as we've piled up rocks, every time that we walk across and look at those rocks, our hearts are changed because we remember, yes, God, you're faithful to me. Every time I pass my Ebenezer, God reminds me, Andy, I remember how I saved you from yourself? Andy, do you remember how I carried you, Andy, do you remember how I saved your son's life over and over and over again during his seizures? Do you remember, Andy, how much I adore you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Three years ago, a dear friend of mine named Sean gave his life to Christ right where Stuart and Lori are sitting. Lori was there that day. Jesus delivered Sean from a lot of things that day. And every year, Sean gives me a call on the anniversary of him giving his life to Jesus. He now lives in Arizona with his family, but Sean calls me and, and says, Andy, I remember. I remember that day. And you got to be there, and thank you so much for being there. And I, I was just the guy, I was just the guy carrying the ark that day. God did all the work in Sean's life, but it, he remembers, and so I get to remember with him. Now, amen, Wendy. Now, we could end the sermon right there, and, and you could walk away going, man, that was, that was an okay sermon. I think you hit a double on that one. Um, and, and, and this is what you might be tempted to apply. You might be tempted to apply it like this. I'm facing something in my life, and that's the River Jordan, and I'm Israel, and if I just have enough faith, then I'll put my foot into the water, and God will recede the waters, and then it'll all work out. That would be a mistake. 
Levi, my son, is here today for the first time in a month. Every day for a month he's been sick. Blood tests, all this kind of crazy stuff. You know, and we find out that he had a massive infections in his intestines and his entire digestive system got shut down. So he's better now, which is great. April's homesick today, so that's not great. So, so what could I say? I could say, well, God, the River Jordan, this, this big river, this big obstacle is my family's health, and everybody's praying, and it's not working, and, and what would I think about God? I think, well, God, either you don't like me or you don't love me, or maybe I'm, you're not the problem, God. Maybe it's me. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm dipping my toe in the water, and I actually just need to jump in. That would be a mistake. That's not what this story is telling you. This story is not about you. This story is about God. And what are we learning about God in this amazing history? We're learning this, that God held back that which would drown Israel so they could move from wandering into promise. That's what we learn in this story. The story is about God. God held back death and drowning so that Israel could move from wandering into living in the promise that God has for them. Now, of course, we can immediately understand the fullness of this story as revealed in Jesus. And you would need to know one important fact that Water, to the ancient Israelites, did not represent life. It actually represented chaos and death. Joshua is, uh, he's about 1300 B.C. And in 1500 B.C., 200 years earlier, the Phoenicians show up on the shores of Egypt for the very first time, sailing on a ship. First time anyone in all of history had seen someone sail on a ship the Egyptians fell to their knees and worshipped the Phoenicians. Why? Because no one could tame water. Water equaled chaos and death. Storms would kill you. You had no way to ride on the top of that chaos and death and overcome it. This is why when Jesus walks on water, he's saying, I can overcome chaos and death. When Peter is sinking into chaos and death, Jesus pulls him out. Water is symbolic for chaos and death. And so what has Jesus done? He's stepped into your chaos and death. And he's held that chaos and death back. He's let it pile up on his shoulders so that you could go from wandering on your own through the death that you do deserve be spared because what Jesus is doing for you and enter the promised land. That's what this story points to. And the miracle of our God is this, that when Jesus entered into those waters, the waters didn't just hold back for him. They killed him. He died for you so that you could enter this promised land. And then Miracle upon miracle, he then walked out of that river, out of that chaos and death, and he says, now the life that I have, I'm going to give to you in this promised land that you will now live in. It's going to be with me. So what does this story mean for you? How do you apply it to your life? It's simple. You're in the promised land. Jesus helped you get across the River Jordan. You're here now in the promised land, and your job is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, to live under his rule and reign because he loves you and he has the best for you. Amen? I'm going to pray for us and give the benediction. If you would like to pray while Casey's leading in worship, please come forward to pray. Now receive the benediction. Let's stand. Mm -hmm.